Going Linux, episode 411, Listener Feedback. Welcome to the Going Linux podcast. I'm your host, Larry Bushy. And I'm your co-host, Bill. Whether you are new to Linux, upgrading from Windows to Linux, or just thinking about moving to Linux, this podcast will provide you with valuable information and advice that will help you in going Linux. We hope that you find this and all our episodes helpful in learning about Linux and open source applications and using them to get things done. If you want to send us feedback, our email address is goinglinux at gmail.com, and our voicemail line is 1-904-468-7889. In today's episode, listener feedback. Hey, Bill. Hey, Larry. How are you? Okay. I know our voicemail line is still working because we got a voicemail. I'm not including it in the show because it was an apology for somebody who posted something um, in error, <laughs> but left left a voicemail for us. So good. That's so good. It works. It does work. Yes. It's been a while since we've gotten a voicemail, but that's okay. As long as we keep having the feedback come in in whatever format, we're very happy and we've got lots of feedback today. Yes. Even some information about a new Linux distribution from a company we all love to hate. So, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, we'll not start with that one, but we will start with an email from David. I'm a regular listener to your podcast. However, I suffer from selective hearing, ADD, evidently. I thought I was cool by installing new non-LTS releases to stay with the latest features, and I could just hop off the non-LTS carousel when it got close to a new LTS, uh, LTS being long-term support release for a, a distribution of Linux. Not so, as no direct update or upgrade path to LTS from non-LTS outside of a clean install came to light as I was reading through the posts on a Linux group I follow on Facebook. I know you stated this to be the case on many occasions in your podcast, but it was not paying attention. I learned my lesson after 21.10 and 21.04 nonsense. I installed the latest 20.04 long-term support system good through April 2025. Side benefit of this was it forced me to go ahead and get rid of a dual boot, and now I have a pure Linux experience. I just run a small virtual machine for that one annoying Windows tax program. My system runs much faster now. Reasons to not run interim releases. Here's the list. Number one, timing of releases and support life is short about nine months max, versus four to five years on long-term support. Uh, Number two, long-term support versions are indeed supported and updated as needed. Number two, no real benefits that I could see in 21.10 or 21.04, maybe prettier icons, LOL, that's it. Four, as mentioned earlier, once non-long-term support, always long-term support from an updating standpoint, otherwise clean install. Number five, 
non-LTS based on what I've read are for true techies that want to test these systems. No value to those of us who use Linux, quote, just to get things done. Enough. Keep up the good work, and I will listen more completely from now on. Best regards, David. Okay, David. Yeah, we've mentioned it before that the non-long-term support versions or those interim releases are sometimes not too much of a change, especially as if, as we are right now, moving into um, the release of a long-term support release, which will be 2204. And of course, what we're talking about here are the Ubuntu-related distributions, right? Um, And 21.10 and 21.04, you won't see a lot of changes. Yes, the uh, the, the, uh, window decorations have changed, and there are a couple of other changes that they're playing with. When there are interim releases that are earlier in the cycle, like just after a long-term support release, that's when you'll find more changes in the uh, interim releases. And those changes could, in fact, break things or uh, cause things not to work the way you would expect. Maybe not break things in the case of the Ubuntu-related distributions, but certainly some significant changes that might be preparation for the next long-term support release, some some uh, introduction, and make sure that they they go well. So, yeah, that's kind of where we're at with that. Yeah, the LTSs are for, for the daily drivers. The the interim is their test bed, so they're important. But uh, unless you really want to be uh, testing the you know, latest and greatest things um, that they're trying to implement into the next LTS. I would just go LTS to LTS. You're not really going to get much benefit from, from jumping, um, from an LTS to a non LTS for, especially for Ubuntu because they like to test, uh, things. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't, but they, that's, you know, they need that test, uh, bid to, for features and stuff. So yeah, I would definitely, if you just, Want it to work? I'd say with the uh, LTS. Yeah, exactly. And that uh, shorter support cycle is pretty important as well. I mean, I'm running twenty one point oh four of Ubuntu Mate right now, and its support runs out basically as soon as twenty one point ten gets released. And <laughs> I'm going to have to switch if I want to continue to have support now. One of the reasons I'm on the interim releases is because we have the podcast and I want to make sure that I understand what the latest and greatest features are. And so I kind of have to. Uh, I don't have to run it as my main computer. I do, but I don't have to. Uh, But, you know, if you are looking for a good, stable Linux distribution with a version that's going to be supported for a long time that you can depend on, then a long-term support release of whatever version of Linux you're interested in is recommended. And you're not going to stay up with the latest and greatest new flashy thing that's being introduced in the Linux community or even within the Ubuntu world. Uh, but you are going to end up with something good and rock solid and stable that you can depend on until the next long-term support, which will be another rock solid and stable version. So there you go. And David found the weak link in being on 
an interim release. When you get the notice of an upgrade, it's going to notice. It's going to notify you that you uh, that there's a new upgrade available when there's a new interim release available. And when you do switch to the long-term support, it's going to remember that you've been on the interim support releases and it's going to notify you again when the interim comes up. <laughs> so if you fresh install a long-term support release, it is going to notify you only of those long-term support releases. Now, I believe there is a way to get back on the long-term support cycle. Uh, if you are in the, let me see in my menu here on Ubuntu Mate, it'll be similar on Ubuntu distributions. So if I go to software and updates in the menu and bring that over to the screen I can see it on, <clears throat> there is a section for updates, a tab for updates. And you can switch it there. And at the bottom of that list, at least on 2104, uh, it says, notify me of new Ubuntu versions. Right now I have it set for any new version. And you can set it to for long-term support versions or to never. So it'll never uh, update you if you select that last one. Uh, you're responsible then for choosing your own updates. But um, if you switch it over to for long-term support versions, that is the way that you make an interim support version notify you only when there's long-term support versions. So you didn't have to install from scratch. Uh, when you do install a long-term support version, that is selected, long-term support version updates only. Uh, but you can switch from one of the interim releases if you like. Anyway, just some comments and suggestions for you. Our next email comes from Mike, who wrote about printer problems. He writes, HP will not scan after upgrading from Mint 20 to 20.1. Not much online about this. HP LaserJet Pro MFP uh, M426 FDW is a great printer all-in-one for Linux. But when upgrading to the 20.1, the scanner will not work. Mint 20 has long-term support release LTS uh, supported until April 2025. I was okay with that, but it will need to be dealt with someday. I run a business and scanning is important. We know the issues with Windows and I will just do about anything to avoid it. I used TimeShift to restore the system back to version 20 and it worked fine. It is in the software, and I have updated the computer to AMD I have built, and it worked on a 70-year-old system. A Lenovo Xeon 5 uh, bought from eBay used. He says, the latest HP LIP uh, 3.21.2 fails to install in a fresh Mint 20.1 because it cannot find several dependency requirements. This looks like an issue with Python. I tried to install other versions of Python and that failed. Also tried an older HP uh, LIP with no success. It's overwhelming to add new and take away all the old files. I just don't have that much time. I may move to Fedora when I find the time, but the fix is probably some smaller thing that 
I have just not considered. Linux Mint is a very good OS, and the HP LaserJet Pro uh, works great beside this upgrade issue. If you print as much as I do, uh, lots of invoices, and this printer uh, pays for itself in ink cartridges in less than a year's time with a LaserJet cartridge that comes with it if you have the $200 on sale up front for the printer. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, so I have read uh, that HPLIP has a problem. It is a Python problem from what I understand, and uh, I'm hoping that it's going to be fixed in the next long-term support release of uh, all of the Ubuntu distributions. It's it's apparently a problem across the Ubuntu spectrum. So Mint being one of those, I'm not surprised that it's failing for you. On Ubuntu Mate 21.04, I usually install um, HPLIP. It's a utility for HP printers. It works for several other printers as well. But I have noticed a few niggling little details that don't quite work right. So what I've been doing is just using the regular... Uh, printer installation method. Um, I don't have a USB cable. I don't have an old enough printer to use a parallel port cable. I use Wi-Fi. And in fact, um, the HP printer that I use, when I install a new version of Ubuntu Mate, I open up the printer configuration uh, application from the menus and it's already there. It has recognized it already and has set it up even over Wi-Fi. So that works for me without any problem at all. And it's a scanner as well. And when I open the scanner application, um, at first it doesn't see the scanner. But when I go to the setup for the um, the simple scan or... Um, the sane scan, which simple scan is based on, it... Uh, it recognizes it, it does the scan, and everything works fine from then on. So you might try that, Mike, if you haven't already switched to something other than um, Linux Mint, like you mentioned Fedora. But uh, I found that the out-of-the-box configuration, at least within Ubuntu Mate, works just fine. And I've used Mint before. It's got some nice setup for printers as well that are built in, so... Give it a try, Mike. Okay. And Mike actually later followed up with a follow-up email and said, thank you for your help, because I submitted some suggestions to him. I have the answer to how to get HP LaserJet Pro MFP 426 M426 FDW, gotta love these uh, model names, <laughs> to scan on Mint 20.2. So it looks like he upgraded to 20.2 from 20.1. I'm not exactly sure where I came across this, but if you open up a terminal and enter HP plugin space I space G, then all the necessary drivers will be installed for your setup. This fixed the scan issue on Mint 20.2 and should apply to Ubuntu users as well. Feel free to share this tip if you like, as it may save someone else from the search for a solution. Again, thank you for what you're doing. This is my little part to help make Linux accessible to others. Mike, 
So I might just give that a try and uh, install HPLIP and see if that little fix works in Ubuntu Mate. Sounds could like it might. one little command line be uh, that powerful? Yes, it could. It could, yes. Uh, it's obviously forcing the installation of some updates that maybe HP has made to their uh, HPLIP application, and uh, maybe that's the fix. Let's hope so. Michael sent us an email with the subject, Thank you. And he, and he writes, Hi guys, my daily driver is Linux, and it's largely because of you. I first installed Ubuntu around 15 years ago, and again about 10 years ago but just couldn't justify switching. Still, Linux curious, I gave it another try five years ago after I began listening to your podcast, starting with episode one. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Episode one. Um, You were in the high 200, so it took (laughs) a little time to catch up. As I listened and started trying distros, it began to make sense. Now I only touch Windows, Mac OS, or Chrome OS, when helping out others. Without your library of episodes, I doubt I'd be running a Linux desktop, Linux web servers, and Linux email servers. So thank you. Whenever I help a non-Linux user, I am reminded how much easier our OS of choice is to use and keep running. For your upcoming user experience episode, maybe a discussion on what got new users over the hump when they got to the point they felt comfortable making Linux the primary desktop OS. For me, it was your podcast, having Firefox and Thunderbird, which I used in Windows, and getting Pepper Flash to work elementary OS, which quickly became too locked down for me, gave the batteries included experience I needed at the time. The final thing that let me go Linux full-time was the VS Code hitting version 1.0. Cheers, Michael. Well, 15 years. That's, that's hard to believe. It uh, It just seems like yesterday Ubuntu <laughs> was just released, and now it's, it's again 15 years plus. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm glad you stuck around this long. And, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and thank you for starting from episode one. I, I hear that a lot, and uh, yeah, it, it seems that those older episodes, although episode one was uh, way, way, way back in, in, I think it was, um, Kubuntu 1606 I was on or something like that. Um, uh, maybe it was actually before that. Maybe that was, uh, before, I switched to Ubuntu. I may have actually been on OpenSUSE at that time. So, yeah, it's been a while. And, um, yeah, things have changed a lot in the uh, Linux world. And That's for sure. Yeah, I, things have just gotten easier and easier. And I, too, um, only use those other operating systems when I have to. One, I have to use for work. Actually, two, I have to use for work. One uh, Mac OS is provided by my company that I work for. And Windows 10 is provided by the client that I'm supporting right now. So I'm actually using both of those. I've used Chrome OS in the past and have stopped using it for a number of reasons. Uh, But um, just recently, I got a support question from someone about Windows and if I didn't listen to some Windows-oriented podcasts, 
I would uh, not have had any answer for this person, but apparently there's a problem going around in the Windows 10 world about um, the computer suddenly, after you've had it turned off for a while, when you turn it on, uh, you get a... a message in your browser that says DNS not responding. I'm assuming it's in the browser. Maybe it's somewhere else. Uh, and, you know, you can search around on YouTube for that, but there's a lot of stuff in there that doesn't necessarily lead you in the right direction. And apparently this person had tried all of that. Um, but um, I had heard, I think it was on the Mike Tech Show, Mike Smith's Mike Tech Show, that their windows had this problem and it will automatically turn off your VPN. If you uh, leave your computer off for a while, it assumes that you're not going to use it and you're not going to use the VPN and it automatically switches it off and you have to go back into the windows settings and re-enable the VPN. Seems like a kind of odd behavior, but uh, I, I haven't heard back whether that fixed it or not. But I made it clear that if that didn't fix it, I had no other answers. So I'm not surprised that I didn't hear anything back. So once you're out of that world, it's tough to kind of stay in touch with it. And yeah, it's, um, I, I, I hear you, Michael. <laughs> I really do. I have to use, um, uh, Windows at work also. Um, don't have to use Mac OS, but we do use, uh, uh, Chromebooks, uh, to the chagrin of myself and when they, uh, the, they break and they don't work and you can't figure out what's wrong with them. But, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but, yeah. uh, yeah, I, uh, yeah, I found that you have to kind of keep your toes in, uh, the water <laughs> of all of them because nothing is just Linux, nothing's just Windows. Keeping your toe in each of the wads is sometimes helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, um, we may have more to say about that in a future um, email in this episode. So let's just kind of hang in there for a minute, and uh, we'll talk about that then. Uh, for now, Mark wrote about distros and photo workflow. Hello, Larry and Bill. Thanks for all your help through the years. I retired at the beginning of the pandemic and took up distro hopping as a hobby to help <laughs> occupy my time. Good hobby. (laughs) I spent the bulk of the last 12 months using Ubuntu Mate 18.04 and the 20.04, and it worked extremely well as my primary distro. But I also bought a few old ThinkPads last year, as they always worked well with Linux, and I love the old keyboards. They also tend to hold up better than many new laptops. This allowed me to do side-by-side comparisons on a number of distros. I worked my way through the old standby, but still excellent Linux Mint. Then I installed Arco Linux, went nuts, and installed like eight desktop environments. I settled on the GNOME desktop, and I was pleasantly surprised how seamless it worked. When I updated GNOME 40... It became my preferred desktop. I am now running Arco GNOME, Pop OS 20.10, and the Cosmic Beta Ubuntu 20.04 and Fedora 34. The Arch-based distros are excellent, but you will have to work your way through bugs occasionally. By the way, the new Arch installer makes it somewhat easier to install, 
although that may spoil it for some masochists. All Ubuntu-based <laughs> distros are solid, and the Linux world owes a huge debt to Canonical for their efforts through the years. Right now, my main Linux machine, a ThinkPad X230T, running Pop! OS 20.10, will upgrade to 21.04 Cosmic as soon as it drops. I'm using the beta on the other machine, and it's very solid. I'm sticking with Ubuntu-based OS simply because I'm more familiar with the repository. But I will continue to use Fedora 34 on a separate machine, and I can see myself moving over eventually if Ubuntu doesn't move to GNOME 40 in 20.10. I have a lot of fun playing with different distros, but at some point you have to pick one. By installing the OS on a separate root partition, I've been able to change operating systems while keeping my home partition intact, something I never bothered to do before. I was also impressed with Steam games, thanks to Proton. I'm not a huge gamer, but the gaming situation has improved dramatically in the last couple of years. And he goes on to what he calls Part 2, Photo Editing. Uh, photo editing workflow in particular. I enjoyed your episode a while back on photo applications for Linux. I use semi-high-end digital cameras, primarily Olympus and Panasonic cameras, and I take thousands of photos a year. For years, I've used Windows and Mac for photo management and editing using both the built-in applications and those from Adobe. I'm fairly picky about my photos, unfortunately. I never found the Linux application to be quite adequate for my needs in the past. This year, I recently started using a new workflow on Linux I thought I'd share as I believe it's excellent, and many photographers will find it very useful for editing and managing large number of photos and videos. To transfer the files from a camera or SD card, I use Rapid Photo Downloader. Unlike other apps I've used, this puts my photos in the photo folder and my videos in the video folder automatically. It may sound obvious, but not all applications do this. It also handles raw formatted photos without issues. Rapid Photos will allow you to do basic tagging and organization into subfolders that allows you to quickly find specific photos or videos based on the date. To edit photos, I've settled on Raw Therapy. I've heard you mention that before, uh -huh. Bill. That's a great one. Yeah. I vacillated between Raw Therapy and Darktable, and they are both excellent editors for JPEG and RAW files. Darktable is a little more than I need, so I've settled on Raw Therapy for now. Darktable is very capable, and I know at least one pro that uses it. It also has Mac and Windows versions for people that might slide between platforms and want to remain consistent. Darktable can also be used to organize photos and download from your camera. But I find it not as simple or as fast as Rapid Photo Downloader, as I prefer to just load all my photos in my home folder and edit as needed. If I am being totally objective, a Linux version of Photoshop Elements would be perfect for me, but I find this workflow almost as seamless. I hope digital photographers on Linux can benefit from it. Again, thank you for your great content. It's been very helpful over the years. Mark. Well, I 
hope and I think that your photo editing workflow is going to be helpful to others as well. And we rely a lot on our listeners to provide feedback and uh, pass that on to our other listeners. Uh, And that's how we are most helpful, I think. Uh, So again, thanks. Yeah, that's sounds like he's uh, trying them all. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, Arcos is... uh... Uh, a cool one. He puts up a lot of YouTube videos to kind of walk people through. So, yeah. Okay, good. So, someone who wanted to remain anonymous wrote, Hi, Larry and Bill. I just listened to episode 409, and I wanted to clarify the problem with dark themes and Firefox. Firefox is configured to do so, does respect the system theme, and you can alternatively enable a dark theme manually. The problem is that the theme is for the browser window, not the web pages you visit in the browser. If you view a site with a light theme, you you just get a dark box around a bright page, which hurts your eyes if you're like me and I and hang out in dark rooms. <laughs> I know of a few options, but none is without issue. There's a cool CSS feature called Prefers Color Scheme which allows websites to specify different themes depending on whether the client is set to use a light theme or dark theme. In Firefox, this preference can be set with the About Config uh, setting. It's UI-System Uses Dark Theme. Use0 indicates a preference for light pages, and 1 indicates dark, and 2 indicates no preference. There are two problems with this. The one, this only works on sites which use the prefers color scheme CSS feature properly. Two, there's another Firefox setting called Privacy Resist Fingerprinting or RFP to prevent websites from tracking users based on how unique their browser looks. Firefox users concerned with privacy may have R. FP enabled, and it's one of the settings used by the Tor browser. This setting overrides the UI.system uses dark theme because sites might identify users based on which theme they use and causes Firefox to always use the light version of the page. As you suggested, there are accessibility settings in Firefox which allow users to override pages themes with whatever colors the user specifies. However, if you have RFP enabled, when you set the settings, Firefox will uh, force a pure white background instead of the background color you chose. Finally, there are extensions like Dark Reader, which explicitly overrides themes on websites you visit. My experience with Dark Reader has been that it mostly works, and it works better on some sites than others. Depending on your settings, it can slow down your browser as it figures out how to render a dark version of the page. Extensions can change your your browser fingerprints, so if RFP is the reason you're in this situation in the first place, you may just be causing more problems for yourself by adding more stuff to the browser. I don't have a perfect answer for what to do in this situation, but I wanted to clarify what the problem is, some of the options and issues with these options. I'd love to hear other solutions people might have found. Okay. Okay, thanks, Anonymous. Sounds like you are uh, well-informed about 
these issues with the Firefox browser, possibly through some personal experience. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, it's uh, really good that you have uh, outlined some of this for our users. And I use the Firefox browser only as an alternative to Chrome at this point. I prefer to use Chrome and it doesn't seem to have the same issues. Um, and between Chrome and Firefox, they're both excellent browsers that do a great job. And with one release, Chrome provides some additional features and benefits and runs faster. And then the next release, Firefox does. So it kind of goes back and forth. It's a battle of the browsers all over again. But uh, yeah, uh, I'm on Chrome, so I don't see this. So thanks for providing that. Yeah, thanks for all that information. All right. Um, Daniel wrote about his trouble with the Ubuntu website. And please understand that Daniel is a blind user of Linux. He writes, the web page layout must have changed a great deal. Using Firefox, I tried to go to Ubuntu.com as I had in the past. Orca, the screen reader, could not work well with that page. It said there was a page there but I could not navigate with the arrows or the tab key. But when I go to ubuntu-mate.org, I got different results that were better. Since ubuntu.com does not work on my Mac with Safari either, I'm thinking the page was rewritten since I was last there. Uh, yes, in fact, I took a look at the page and sent some information back to Daniel about how he made get around this problem with the screen reader. And if you go to ubuntu.com, you'll notice that if you hadn't already opened it up in your current browser session, it asks you with a pop-up to accept their cookies. Now, apparently that pop-up is not screen reader friendly. And so you can't navigate using the arrow keys. You can't use navigate using the tab key. But what you can do if you're okay with accepting the cookies, which typically you have to do in order to use the page, if you just press enter when you get to that pop-up on the screen, it will accept the cookies and now you can use the Ubuntu.com site as you normally would. So if there's anybody from the Ubuntu.com um, community or canonical that's listening to our podcast here, that might be something you want to take a look at from an accessibility perspective on that pop-up. I don't know if there's much you can do about it, but at the very least, you might want to make that pop-up so that a screen reader can read the text within the pop-up. It's not at all screen reader accessible at this point. But uh, hopefully that suggestion of just hitting enter will help Daniel. And just for completeness... Once you've hit enter, as long as you don't close your browser and open it up again, uh, it will continue to work normally. And even if you close the tab that the Ubuntu website is in, um, you will not have that pop up the next time you open Ubuntu.com. Uh, but as soon as you close the browser and start a new session, pop up comes back and you're back in the same situation. So for those of you who rely on a screen reader, hopefully that tip helps. Yeah. Our next email comes from Greg, who told us about a new Linux distro. He writes, Hi Larry, you probably already know about this, but Microsoft has released their own distribution of Linux called CBL-Mariner. Regards, Gregory. 
W8FJK. So I took a, a few minutes and kind of looked over uh, what they're trying to do with it. And uh, it looks like they're, it's mostly going to be for like, you know, maybe some light um, appliances. I'm not quite sure what exactly their focus is, but they, there's, their page uh, gives credit to a bunch of different uh, open source projects. So what do you think, Larry? Yeah. Uh, in addition to the GitHub link, we'll have a link to an article by um, the ubiquitous uh, Stephen J. Von Nichols on uh, ZDNet. And he's discussing this new distribution from back in July 16th. I think it's been around for a little while, but we're just getting to it now. And I didn't even know it existed until Greg had given us that link. So what Stephen says in his article is that it's not named MS Linux or Lindos, <laughs> but it is uh, CBL-Mariner and or just simply Mariner. And that's what I'll refer to it as. So Mariner is, yes, it's lightweight. It is not meant as a desktop Linux, but it is meant as a server-based Linux. And you can install it or you can run it in a, in a virtual environment. Or you can run it in the cloud in a, in a cloud device. That's what it's geared to more than anything else. And taking a look at some of the instructions, uh, it's not, you can download it and you can install it. But strangely, the instructions say use Ubuntu to build the installation. Uh, and then you install it. And then what you get is an RPM based distribution called Mariner that uses tiny DNF as its package manager, as the RPM package manager, and um, more details there and links to other things related to it. But apparently uh, Microsoft is getting into the Linux distribution business, at least from a server perspective. Yeah, you know, it sounded uh, strange there when you said it. It's like, so Microsoft tells you to use Ubuntu, which is a dead-based distro, to build mm -hmm. it, but then you get a RPM-based distro after you've built it. Right. Well, you know, the the Windows subsystem for Linux, mm -hmm. it, it, which is a Linux that runs on Windows, um, that is based on the canonical Ubuntu distribution. So I have a feeling that they used that as their development platform and their testing platform. And so the instructions are related to what they know, oh. which is Ubuntu. And then they based their uh, Mariner Linux, uh, building it from the input of uh, a number of different groups, as they indicate in the GitHub page. Then they give credit to all of those groups. Uh, and it looks like they may have used a little bit of Linux from scratch, a little, little bit of Arch, a little bit of Fedora, a little bit of Red Hat, and built their own distribution, not as a, a fork of any of those, but built their own independent Linux distribution based on the knowledge that they gained from their use of uh, Ubuntu and their use of all these and the research on all these other applications and probably the use of those and trying them out and figuring out was what was best for them. So lots of lots of different uh, input and hopefully it's a good one. Yeah. 
Okay. And that brings us to the end of our feedback. All right. All right. So uh, anything further from you, Bill? I know we've kind of stopped giving application picks or anything like that, but if you have one, now would be a good time. I don't. <laughs> I really don't have one. I'm pretty much using the same stuff that I've used forever because it just works. <laughs> and with the crazy work schedule I have, it's that's a blessing to be able to just uh, jump onto the computer, get, get what I need to get done, and then <laughs> think go to bed so yeah. yeah 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 not a lot of experimenting around for you uh and for me either uh, i've been a bit busy at work and uh trying to keep up with the podcast schedule and so i haven't had a lot of time for experimenting around as well and ubuntu mate 21.04 has given me no problems that i've had to fix so yeah not much new uh, we have some new articles on our website if you're interested in that. And we have yet to decide what our next uh, user experience episode will be. So we can't give you a preview of that topic. So until then, you can go to our website at goinglinux.com for articles and show notes, as well as links to download and subscribe. We provide the website for computer users who just want to use Linux to get things done. And if you'd like, you can participate directly with our friendly and helpful community members by joining the discussion in our Going Links podcast community on community.goinglinks.com. Until next time, thanks for listening. 73. music provided by Mark Blasco at podcastthemes.com.